Chapter thirty eight of the Mystery of the Ravenspurs by Fred M. White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty eight. Geoffrey gets a shock. Ralph Ravenspur had wandered along the cliffs, and Geoffrey had followed him. The latter came up to the blind man at the loneliest part of the rugged granite, and there for a time they sat. Ralph was graver and more taciturn than usual, till presently his head was raised, and he seemed to be listening to something intently. "'What is the matter?' Geoffrey asked. "'Somebody is close to us,' Ralph explained. "'Somebody is creeping up to us in the gorse. Nay, you need not move. We are safe here on this bare ledge.' There is one thing there is no cause to fear in dealing with these miscreants, and that is firearms. Weapons of that description make a noise, and your Oriental hates noise when he is out on the kill. Ah, what did I tell you? Somebody is close by. A figure rose out of the gorse, a slender figure with a ragged beard and brown face. The stranger crept along and dropped by Geoffrey's side. "'Don't be alarmed,' he said. "'It is only I, Tchigorsky.' Geoffrey was astonished, though he had no occasion to be. Ralph took the matter coolly. "'I expected something like this,' he said. "'I knew you would desire to see me, and that is why we came along the rocks.' Chigorsky lay on his back, puffing at a cigarette. "'Keep your eyes open,' he said to Geoffrey. "'One can't be too particular. Not that there is any danger, for I've sent those two wretches off on a wild goose chase for an hour or two, and the she-devil is down with one of her blinding headaches. You wouldn't think she was a woman whose heart is in a weak state, eh?' "'I shouldn't have supposed she had one,' said Geoffrey. "'Have you seen her?' "'I was in her company for a long time last night,' Tchigorsky explained. "'I posed as one of the murderers of Vosky. "'I gave her proofs of my success.' "'The forged Garuda stone,' Ralph chuckled. "'The same,' Tchigorsky said gravely. It was a magnificent forgery, and calculated to deceive these pious, murderous old rascals at Lhasa. At any rate, I am now deep in the confidence of the princess, and attached to her subordinates, who are pledged to assist in wiping out the Ravenspur family. Geoffrey sighed involuntarily. He would have liked to know why this vendetta aimed at his family but he knew that the question would be useless. Still, he felt that a great deal had been gained during the last few hours. "'Have you learned what the latest villainy is?' Ralph asked. "'Not yet. There is much uneasiness and alarm felt over the recent failures, and my dusky allies are getting a little frightened. For the next day or two I expect we shall lie low and plan some big coup. What I want to secure now are the princess's private papers. 
I know she has them, and is in regular communication with the priests at Lassa. Give me these, and I can expose the whole plot. Let me wipe these three people out, and then Lassa shall get a hint that will save further trouble from that quarter. A hint from the India office that any more rascality will mean an expedition to Lassa, and the destruction of their temples will suffice. But first I must have my proofs. Without proofs I am helpless. Find them, Ralph croaked. Find them. Never mind the scandal. Never heed what people may say. Bring the matter home. Hang those wretches, and we shall never more be troubled by this plague from the east. If I had my way, I would shoot the whole lot. And be hanged for your pains, Tchigorsky replied. Ah, my friend, there are serious flaws in the criminal laws of this fine country of yours. Patience, patience. I shall find out everything in time. There is one thing I am curious to know, said Geoffrey. I want to know who was the girl on the cliff with Mrs. May that afternoon, the girl who has such an amazing likeness to Marion. Have you discovered that, Tchigorsky? That is what I am trying to get at myself, Tchigorsky replied with great gravity. It is one of the mysteries of the campaign. Geoffrey said no more on the point, chiefly because he had no more to say. Yet it was haunting him now, as it had done, for some time past. It filled his mind as he made his way down the cliffs after luncheon, and then, to his surprise, as he gained the sands, he saw a figure rise from the rocks and flit along the beach until it flashed round a distant point. It was the girl who bore that surprising resemblance to Marion. She was dressed, as before, in a blue skirt and red tam-o'-shanter. With a sudden impulse Geoffrey followed. His feet flew over the heavy sands, making no noise. As he turned the rocky point he saw no signs of the girl, but there on the beach, with her sketch-book on her knee, was Marion herself, so deeply interested in manipulating her watercolors that she did not see Geoffrey till he hailed her. "'Did you see her?' Geoffrey gasped. Marion smiled at his excited face. "'See whom?' she asked. "'Oh, yes, some girl did pass me. But I was so busily engaged that I did not look up. How do you think my sketch is progressing? I have been at it all the morning. Vera made me a small bet that I should not finish it today, so I am going to win my bet or perish in the attempt. Geoffrey was hardly listening. He recollected that there had been some little chaff at luncheon over some sketch but he had paid little heed to the subject. "'It was the same girl,' he said. "'The girl so like you. Oh, Marion, how unfortunate you did not look up!' "'It was indeed,' Marion replied. She appeared to be deeply interested. "'I would have given anything to see her. But it is not too late. 
Put my materials in your boat, Jeff, and I will follow up the cliffs. I can't be very much use, I'm afraid, but at any rate I may solve this much of the mystery. Geoffrey returned to his boat. It seemed very strange to him that Marion should not have seen the girl, and also that on each occasion these two should have been so close together without meeting. Geoffrey pushed his boat out, got his sails up, and then stood out for the bay. It was very quiet, and no other boats were to be seen. One or two of the upper windows of the castle were visible from there, but no other signs of habitation. The breeze freshened as Geoffrey reached the open sea. Some distance from him a pile of wreckage covered with a mass of seaweed floated on the water. "'I'll anchor here and get my lines out,' said Geoffrey. He luffed, and as he did so, a puff of wind filled the sail. The mast gave an ominous crack, and the whole thing snapped and went by the board. Geoffrey stared with widely open eyes. The wind was as nothing, barely enough to belly the sail. Then he looked down and saw that the mast had been almost sawn away. Somebody had cut it nearly through, so that the first puff would suffice. Geoffrey felt vaguely alarmed and uneasy. He was a good four miles from shore and was an indifferent swimmer. The sea was too dangerous and rough for bathing. There might be further treachery. He sat down and pulled hard at the oars with the idea of returning to the beach again. As he bent his back to the work, he toppled over the seat with two short stumps in his hands. The oars, too, had been sawed through, and Geoffrey was helpless, four miles from land in an open boat, with no means of progress and nobody in sight. The position was alarming. There would be nothing for it but to wait until some passing craft came along and picked him up. But the time went by without any sign of a boat, and starvation might be the result. Nor was the position improved when it began to dawn upon Geoffrey that the boat was filling fast. He saw that a large hole had been bored in the bottom and filled with some kind of substance that slowly dissolved in the water. With a tin dipper, Geoffrey worked away with all his might, but he could only keep the water from rising higher and knew that the exertion would soon tell upon him. "'Help!' he cried. "'Help! Help! Help!' He ceased to call as suddenly as he had begun. What was the use of calling so long as nobody could hear him? And why waste the breath that would be so precious to him later? He could not see that the mass of wreckage and seaweed had drifted close to the boat, he saw nothing till a line thrown into the boat struck him smartly on the face. He looked up. "'Can you manage to keep her afloat?' a hoarse voice came from the wreckage. "'For an hour, perhaps,' Geoffrey replied. "'Why?' "'That will do,' said the other. "'I've got a paddle here. 
hitch the rope onto the nose of the boat and bail out for all you are worth. This is another of the princess's little tricks. I expected it. Only it hasn't turned out quite the way that I anticipated. Now bail away. Chigorsky, Geoffrey gasped. Chigorsky. Very much at your service. I rigged up this contrivance this morning and pushed off with it not long before you came down. But never mind me. Stick to your dipper, and I'll tell you all about it when we are ashore. It was hard and weary work for both of them, but it was accomplished at last. Geoffrey was utterly exhausted when the boat was safely beached, and Tchigorsky, too, felt the effect of his exertions. He lifted himself cautiously off his raft and made a dart for one of the caves. Inside he had dry clothing, long flowing robes, wig, and hair for his face, pigments that changed the hue of one hemisphere to that of another. Geoffrey, limp and exhausted, watched the artistic transformation with admiration. "'It's wonderful,' he said. "'But then you are a wonderful man, Tchigorsky. How did it all happen? Who did it?' Tchigorsky smiled as he touched up his face. "'It was inspired by a woman and carried out by a woman,' he said. "'I dared not warn you before you started, and, indeed, I expected further developments. But a woman doctored your boat for you.' Geoffrey started as an idea came to him. "'Was she young and good-looking?' he asked. "'Dressed in—' "'Dressed,' Tchigorsky smiled, "'in a blue serge dress and a red tam-o'-shanter. "'I need not ask if you have met the lady before.'" End of chapter 38